Welcome to the Guernsey Press Politics Podcast. I'm Matt Fallays and joining me today is Bob Murray. Deputy Murray is in his first term in the States. Initially, he was vice president of the Committee for Education, Sport and Culture. And now he is a member of the Policy and Resources Committee, which is why he is speaking to me today. At the next States meeting in mid-October, PNR will try to convince the Assembly where they have failed twice before to back a big tax-raising package, including GST and reductions in income tax and social security for the least affluent half of the island, and additional borrowing of £350 million to help fund about £600 million worth of capital projects. Welcome, Deputy Murray, and thank you for joining us. Good morning, Matt. First of all, I want to give you the floor and uh, invite you for two or three minutes to set out in a nutshell, then, what the Policy and Resources Committee is proposing and why you think it's the right course of action for Guernsey at this time. Probably if I turn those questions around and actually answer the why, first of all, because I think people generally are not entirely aware of the challenges that we currently face and will face increasingly in the future, which is completely understandable. Uh, I mean, Guernsey largely is apathetic towards politics. We've been a very prosperous society for quite a long time. That's changing, and the main driver for that is actually demographics. The demographic time bomb, as it's referred to, is going to be a very difficult challenge for Guernsey in particular because we're a small community, and that change whereby the uh, the demographic profile, instead of actually looking like a pyramid, is turned almost the other way around, which is to say that we've got more people taking money out of the system at sort of pensioner age than we've actually got workers paying into the system. And that's something that's really difficult because what it does do, it exacerbates health, for example, health requirements. Um, and because of our dropping um, uh, birth rate, unfortunately, it means that we've got fewer and fewer people paying into the pot. So we have to address that. All Western societies have to deal with this, but Guernsey obviously can't print money. So to balance the books, we've got to find a better way, if you like, of actually increasing the revenues that we've got. And they have to be spent wisely. I don't think anybody's disputing that. But we're not going to have enough revenues. By about 2040, we're talking about a £100 million loss on an annual basis. We can't sustain that. So recognising that, we have to start taking action as soon as possible. Now, the three-letter word that you referred to um, is not the whole package that actually is being proposed. Because in its own and of itself, it is regressive. But that's not actually how it's been structured. And I think that's a really important point that people need to understand because it actually spreads the load far more regress uh, progressively. So, for example, people at the lower end will actually be somewhat better off. People in the middle will be about neutral. People at the other end who actually can afford it are actually going to be paying more money. And that's primarily by changing the social insurance structure that we've got. Um, but people are finding that very difficult to believe. All the projections show it. Um, it is the, probably the fairest way, rather than, for example, just adding money to income tax, which is disproportionately hitting people on lower incomes. So what we're proposing to do, um, and part of the difficulty here, again, is historic. We haven't spent money on infrastructure for many, many years. Um, and it's unfortunate. Um, your last guest, I think it was Lyndon, was talking about the fact that the bond that was introduced at very much better times, uh, and it was a good idea, uh, very low interest rates for many years. Taking it on out at that time was great. We didn't spend it all because part of the rules around that were that we actually had to have an income from what we spent, and I think that's fiscally very sensible. But for some reason, we didn't actually spend on infrastructure hardly at all. I think the, the biggest thing that we'd done in the last few years was probably uh, the waste transfer station that we built. And that's meant that we've got an accumulation of 
you know, unavoidable infrastructure projects that we actually got to deal with, or we kick them down the can, down the can down the road again. Um, now, some of those things are falling apart. Uh, the castle emplacement is a case in point. I mean, I was shocked coming into the States to realise actually, and I mean, this, this is just recently, we've been told about millions of pounds of expenditure just to, you know, repair that bridge. And we can't not do it. But we could have done it a lot cheaper many years ago, as is always the case. But we've put it back and we've put it back. And now basically it's we make your mind up time. Do you want to carry on doing that, knowing it will get more expensive? Or do you want to try and put in place a mechanism by which we can do that? So borrowing is certainly one of the things that we need to consider. Not the Guernsey way, but actually we've had advice from uh, Ernst & Young. And actually borrowing is actually a better route for us, providing we can pay it back. And this is where those three letters come in, because it raises more revenue. Um, and it will raise considerable more res revenue, and it will raise revenue from areas that actually the local population won't be paying. So, for example, visitors will contribute about £7 million as a consequence on an annual basis. Corporates, and everybody wants to actually corporates to spend more money um, or pay more money, they'll contribute about £8 million under this that we're not getting today. So, you know, you're talking about multi-millions that currently we can access from sources that are actually hitting islanders in the pocket. So that's one of its benefits, basically, at the end of the day. But as a consequence of introducing GST in two years' time, because it won't happen tomorrow, we have to prepare the island and, and businesses to be able to do that. If we can actually introduce that, we will be safeguarding a mechanism by which we could borrow and we could actually expedite some of these projects that have actually been sitting around for a long time. Now, two of the major projects, obviously, at the moment that seem to be competing, and I say it's very, very sad that we're in a position that those projects are competing, are extensions to the hospital, which, of course, we will need, and the changes to the education estate, which we also need. Um, so, unfortunately, to, to be able to afford both of those, and I'll come to the construction side of those in the industry in a moment, we're going to have to borrow. Because if we don't borrow, our reserves will get completely exhausted. If we do that, by about 2029, we will have exhausted our reserves if we would only use those for all of these capital projects. We would be in a serious position at that point, because any further borrowing, we'd either be unable to pay or it would be a lot more expensive than it currently is. And very importantly, our credit rating would have dropped again. We've been told this, you know, there's no question about that. So these are things we know could happen. We're trying to avoid that. Okay, so we'll return to borrowing in a moment and mm. we'll talk about the list of capital projects and the capacity of the island to carry them out. But let, returning to the tax side of the package, yeah. and you, you characterised those three words, GST, those three letters, GST, which uh, many people are focused on. But it's obviously true that you have come up with a package yes. which does redistribute yes. to the least affluent half of the island. And a lot of people would have thought that was impossible yes. in a package that included GST. But do you accept that you have just been unable to communicate that adequately to the public? Oh, and, absolutely. And so why do you think that is? I think many reasons. I mean, generally, nobody wants to pay any more tax anyway. The GST has a terrible reputation. <clears throat> Not this GST, probably the GST that actually other members of other assemblies tried to introduce before because it was at that point, unfortunately, not supported by a whole change to the social insurance structure. 
Um, so clearly, you know, people have a, a history, an understanding of that. Um, but people are generally quite scared about this because it's something they really have never experienced before. I mean, VAT has been around, uh, consumption tax has been around for decades, basically. All our competitors have it. Um, they haven't fallen apart. The world didn't come to an end. And people like Jersey, for example, who've had it since like, 2008, I think it was, they put it in. You know, they're getting something like 100 million a year out of this extra that they can spend on civic pro pro programs and so on and so forth. But we don't have that access. So uh, the other man has got 20% VAT. Now, I'm not saying for any reason that we would want to get anywhere near that. They get 400 million a year extra into the public coffers to be able to use, obviously, for public good. So we are we're in a situation where we're trying to compete with the same sorts of services that those those jurisdictions are providing but we haven't got the same level of income at all or anything like at this stage but you've been saying this for a couple of years your colleagues have been saying it for a couple of years yeah. essentially the the tax side of the proposals is has been unchanged for quite a long time now has haven't they yeah but you're not making any headway in terms of public and political opinion are you 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 are stuck with a set of proposals which you can defend coherently and you believe in, but you can't get them through the states. Well, that would probably be down to how members view it at this point in time. And I think there are also political ramifications of this. One of the arguments, for example, that was put up in, uh, in February when we were talking about this, I think it was Deputy Burford, you know, the timing's not right. You know, it'll just get overturned. Well, if it's going to take two years to introduce whenever you do it, when do you do it? Because if a new influx of uh, deputies comes in at the beginning of, well, the middle of 2025, they're going to actually have to get their feet under the desk. It'll be probably midterm or 12 months or 18 months into that before they realise, actually, we don't have a choice, guys. We're going to have to do this. So the fact is, the sooner we actually accept that, there's never going to be a good time to introduce this. But you actually have to allow those two years for that to actually come into place. And inflation's been another thing. And I mean, inflation's been terrible for us all. I mean, we completely understand that. But Actually, inflation is now, I think it's peaked. It's coming down again. By those two years, what's projected at the moment is it will be back to a more normal level. Now, that's what we hope. It may not happen, but that's what we hope. We know it's inflationary for a period, but we're making adjustments for that by actually increasing, obviously, tax and, and uh, insurance benefits to, to be able to do that. But the reality is that, you know, and, and I think it's changed. I mean, yesterday, for example, the, um, the chamber executive backed it. Now, that's a change. And if you read actually what their explanation for doing that was, they've accepted that otherwise we're facing managed decline. And that is the problem. Now, the people don't want to hear that. I understand that. I was against GST when I came in. I thought, why on earth would we want to go down that road? I had no idea about the real state of affairs of our finances. And it shocked me. For example, I had no idea when I came in in 2020 that we had nothing more than about 17 years worth of pension reserves in the pot. Now, that's dreadful. I mean, it's scary stuff. Now, thankfully, we put in, in the absence of any other mechanism doing it, which GST would address, we've actually put in an, a 10-year increase. Every year, we will increase social insurance to try to address that. But these are scary numbers. And that can only get worse as we get that demographic, obviously, time bomb exploding. So you mentioned uh, some of the views that you held when you came into the States. Now, you, you will have expected me to do this, but let, let's just go back to the 2020 hmm. general election. You at that time were a member of the Guernsey Party. I was. And the Guernsey Party's manifesto included aiming, I accept the word aiming, for no tax increases during this term. Yeah. 
uh, no GST. And you said in your own election material, uh, and this is a direct quote, I do not look to anyone paying more tax. Tax rises are self-defeating. And now, obviously, you, you are on, on P&R mm. proposing the, the largest tax increases in decades. Uh, you were against GST. Now you're proposing GST. Can you understand people who, who, who think those commitments were at best naive and at worst misleading? Of course, completely understand that. I mean, at the time, that appeared to be a realistic option for us. Because when you're outside of the States... You can only understand to a certain degree, actually, where the situation, certainly the demographic impact, the impact on our health service at this point in time, and not something that you could actually determine from the outside. There was no question about that. And ordinarily... The size of the deficit was known, though, wasn't it? The, the, no, it was, it was actually disguised. The, the, and it was disguised the, the for two reasons. The deficit of, of 100 million-ish now, by 2040, is broadly similar to the, the size of the deficit that was projected in 2018, 2019, 2020. 2018, 2019. That, that material was out. It might very well have been out, but actually it was masked to a certain extent, or if you like, the impact of that was masked to a certain extent because we hadn't been spending on infrastructure. We were distorting actually what the income actually looked like because we weren't spending what that 2% of GDP that we we're supposed to. So from the outside looking in, it seemed that we were making a surplus. That surplus was also masked because we were including investment income in that revenue. We should never have done that because investment income can swing wildly up and down. Um, as it did over the last two years, we had about £85 million plus 2021. It got completely wiped out last year. And it's just the market. So we, we can't depend on revenue coming in, if you like, from investments we have to depend on what the underlying revenue picture actually is. And that is actually the structural deficit you're referring to. But ordinarily, in a very different environment, which COVID, Brexit, and now the Ukraine war had not affected, you would find yourself where obviously tax incentives would be to try to make business more successful. That's usually, I mean, I think Rishi Sunak is talking about that again today at the Conservative Conference. That is normally how things will work. Against the backdrop of what we actually were confronted with, you had to change tack. And one of the key things there, which I disagree with some members of our, our assembly, growth is stuck just now. It's not stuck because we're not generating growth. We have, some people think, between two and 3,000 vacancies on the island. So we've got the business. We can't service it. So in, normally, if we were able to bring in the people that we need, we could make growth assist us going forward. But housing is preventing that. So the usual levers you would pull, you would pull, and that I felt probably we were going to be able to pull, have not materialized. So if you don't learn from what you see when you come into the situation, you're a fool, in my opinion. So you're, you're saying, in a sense, the circumstances have changed. Your critics would say the circumstances haven't changed. But the, the, the election commitments, and, and you were far from alone um, among mm. uh, elected candidates who, who um, made pledges about GST and not being in favour of tax increases. But that has created a trust problem, hasn't it? it we we yeah, were just talking sure about PNR's difficulty in communicating yeah, no, the advantages of its package. Yeah. Do you think partly that is because so many of those deputies who are now arguing for for the tax package, including GST, actually stood at the election in a completely different place. Yeah, but we're in a completely different place. This is the point that I'm trying to make. 
We knew, of course, that we'd had COVID. What we didn't know were the impacts of COVID, which have been dramatic, to be perfectly honest, worldwide. It's not just Guernsey. What we didn't also know is that whilst we had Brexit on the horizon and had been argued about for four years, that actually that would deny us access to the usual sources of labour that we've had to the extent that it currently has. I mean, it has decimated things like the tourism industry. It really has. And then, of course, Ukraine war, which pushed inflation beyond anybody's expectations. So these are this is us reacting to what the world is like. Now, if I'd said in my manifesto, I'm going to, in, 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 you know, I'm, I'm going to introduce GST, I don't know how people would have responded, but whoever came in would still have had these difficulties to deal with. Now, it is very unfortunate because you put a manifesto together in good faith, in the expectation that that's what you actually want to aim to do. But anybody who actually doesn't react, and I've got some colleagues in the assembly who come hell or high water will only stick with their manifesto. Now, I, I accept you know, that that is a very principled thing to do, but if it's ignoring reality then I don't think they should be doing that. That is not being responsible. I mean, you know, we have all got to accept that perhaps we make mistakes. Some of those, as you say, perhaps we should have a better understanding of. Some of those we couldn't possibly have known. So I, I can't defend it more than that. Yes, I did change my mind. I am astounded that members of the Assembly who tried GST before are now still opposing it. That I don't understand. That doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Because if it was right... Four years ago, whenever was the last time that we tried this, for the same members that we've currently got opposing it at the moment, something when, when things have got far worse, something isn't quite right. Some of them are now suggesting a health tax, effectively an, an additional tax on income, ring fence to, to, to pay for the health service, which is where the, the greatest revenue spending pressures are because of demographic changes. Uh, and by PNR's own figures, I mean, I, I think a 3% health tax would raise something like £40 million a year. It would make a significant dent on, on the deficit. Yeah, Why is PNR returning again to GST when it hasn't been able to get it through the States twice before, rather than looking at alternative forms of, of raising taxation, of which health tax is, is just one, and, and trying to get a majority for something it actually can get through the States? Uh, it would be short term if it was anything at all, but actually it doesn't do the job. Um, to start with, 3% isn't enough. It's going to be more like 5 possibly 6%. Uh, not only does that make us uncompetitive with our other jurisdictions that obviously we compete for business with, it actually doesn't do the job. Because if you hypothecate health tax, you can't use it for anything else. I've already said that pensions have a problem at this point in time. And we can address that with the GST package because the whole social insurance structure gets changed. Um, so health tax won't do anything about the pension situation. We're still going to be stuck with having to do that. A health tax doesn't raise anything to replace the reserves that we will require to pay for all of the work that we're going to do. You couldn't use it for that. So it doesn't address, if you like, our capital spend that we actually have to spend. And furthermore, it is disproportionate. Because it hits everybody, it hits people at the bottom end of the scale disproportionately. It hits people at the top end who probably aren't necessarily using so much, actually, of those public services at the end of the day. Um, and as I say, that's making this uncompetitive. So in and of itself, yes, it sounds like a great thing to do, but it's not going to solve the problem. GST, or a version of it, a, you know, a, a, a diversification of our tax base, which is essential, it is essential for a number of reasons, is inevitable. Not the least of which, basically, is the fact that we are in a position 
whereby if we've got an aging population, we've got more people not paying tax at all. 70% of our tax at the moment comes in from earned income. And we're talking about putting more of a load onto exactly that same group of people. It's not appropriate. So yes, it sounds easier. It sounds simpler, as you say. People might be able to understand that a little better, but actually it is both unfair and it's not going to do the job. In simple terms, the, the, the principal argument for GST is really that we have more people retiring yeah. who are more affluent than predecessor generations, and we need to collect more tax from that part of our society than we have in the past, isn't it? That, in a nutshell, is what you mean by diversification. It, diversification is to bring revenue in from other sources than we're currently doing at this point in time, because that earned income cannot sustain either continually increasing, which is likely to have to. The other sources are pensioners, aren't they? No, well, the other sources basically are people who might be here as you who might be better off. They may not necessarily be pensioners. Um, they may not be working, but actually, so they're not paying tax necessarily, otherwise than, than perhaps to, to have arrived here in the first place. Um, but as I mentioned before, tourists aren't paying any tax. So that extra seven million is a lot of money that we would get from tourists that we won't get with a health tax. The corporates paying an extra eight million pounds as part of that whole GST approach, we won't get that either. So what we will get. And actually, we are already progressing because at least some of the things that came out of the tax debate were that we actually investigate corporate tax generally. Now, the, the, there's a couple of things that we need to be aware of here. And we've set up a subgroup to actually look at that. And we've been talking to our competitor um, jurisdictions, Jersey and uh, the Isle of Man. And we've gone to them and said, now, look, would you look at your corporate tra tax structure, which is everybody's clamoring for? No. You sort out your consumption tax that we've got first. And then we'll talk about whether we jeopardize our corporate tax structure. Now, you can't argue with that at the end of the day. So it's up to us to put our own house in order before we can expect the other jurisdictions. And if we want to go ahead on our own, as I think Deputy Parkinson was suggesting with a territorial tax, yes, that would diversify you know, our tax base. It would be fatal at this point to do it on our own. And the House agreed with that. It didn't happen. And it won't happen unless we do it in unison. So the logical thing at the moment is to introduce that consumption tax. Okay, let's talk about uh, borrowing and, and the, the capital project side of, of your, uh, your committee's package. Um, you're putting three options before the states, having reflected on uh, the messages you've had back from states members to, to try to get at least one package that, that can Absolutely. command a majority. Yeah. Now, one of the packages includes... £200 million pounds of additional borrowing yep. to help fund capital projects, but doesn't include any new substantial revenue streams, doesn't include GST, and therefore you wouldn't have any additional revenue to repay the borrowing. Now, I know that's not the package that PNR is is recommending to the states, but it is a package on which you are giving the states a vote. It seems like the most irresponsible course of action imaginable. So why put that to a vote at all? Um, actually, what you're probably not recognising or realising, um, I'm sure you probably have done your homework, actually, we are introducing other tax measures. We're expecting to introduce 15 million from corporates, 10 probably coming in from the Pillar 2 situation, another five that we believe that we can raise there. So that's 15 million extra coming in. What we're also doing is we're actually going to introduce transport taxes, which we expect to get about another 10 or 11 million pounds from. Um, and there will be other things, obviously, that we're going to look at as well. So there is actually additional income, but that's true for all three. But that will be swallowed up by 
the deficit, won't it? With, with tens of millions still left as a whole of the deficit. Oh, uh, so in the so long how term, will absolutely, the borrowing absolutely. be repaid in this two hundred million pound borrowing package? How, how on earth is that repaid? Well, what I'm saying there is that you've got. 25 million or so that actually is going into the coffers at the moment that would certainly service that debt. It doesn't solve the long-term problem. That's the difficulty. Um, and what it certainly will do is it will still deplete our reserves. And in the longer term, that will be fatal. So it's not what we would wish to do. These, all three options are possible in the short term. And it's a question about appetite. I think Lyndon, when he was here speaking the last time, talked about what's politically possible at the end of the day. So we have to give people a range. Because obviously, if, if, if our favourite option doesn't succeed, we do not want to walk away with nothing. So that is a short-term viable package, but it is not something in the longer term. And that's something that we'll be making very clear, obviously, during the debate. The other option, if you like, is almost do nothing. Now, we have about £96 million worth of um, or ongoing projects at the moment that we can't, we can't back out of, and we wouldn't want to back out of. We still have about £160 million of that bond, which is unused. So we're prepared to actually utilise that and add to that with some things that, frankly, we really should do in the meantime, but not the two major projects, because they are not possible in that situation. That, that's the Princess Elizabeth Hospital, the, extension, the next phase, phase two, and, and, and Liz Oswe. Yeah. Uh, but under your preferred package, both of those projects become they possible, that this yeah. is uh, £350 million pounds of borrowing. Now, PNR had the authority of the states to borrow two years ago. They did, yeah when interest rates were about 0.1% and then returned to the States 12 months later and said, we've looked at the figures again, we don't think borrowing is necessary. And is now returning saying, actually, it is necessary at £350 million. Now, first of all, I want to get your view on whether it was a mistake not to borrow two years ago when interest rates were at historic lows. But also, the, th the, the, the price of borrowing measured by 30-year bonds has just reached a 20-year high. That suggests you couldn't be proposing borrowing at a worse time, doesn't it? Well, two things. Um, in terms of the situation when we were looking at borrowing initially, early part of the term, you don't borrow for money that actually you don't know what you're going to spend on. To some extent, and you could do this with the bonds such as it was, you could take out 330 or whatever it was such at the time, because it was so low that repayment on that was negligible. Plus, you were in a position whereby some of the things you knew you were going to spend that money on, for example, some of the utilities, and that was primarily the reason that it was actually originally introduced, would be giving you a return. GHA was another area, obviously, where, again, there would be a return. If you don't know what you're going to spend the money on, you really shouldn't take on debt at this stage. Now, we didn't have a structured plan for the level of capital expenditure that we hadn't mapped it at that stage. I mean, it's taken us some time to get to that point. It's taken us some time to determine what actually is practical and feasible and a priority than actually just saying, oh, we'll just borrow money. We have actually taken it on the basis of, and again, we took very strong advice on this, and it's called a bridge to bond approach, which means that you take it on, you, you withdraw it from whichever source, for example, you have, we have an overdraft facility, you take a bank loan, and then you convert it to a bond when you're at the point that you need that amount of money. So you're not paying for money that you don't need. And that's what we've now structured. So that we've had advice on that. What we had at that point, of course, was we were still level pegging in terms of our credit worthiness with the other uh, jurisdictions. It came as something of a shock 
And the reason that actually that was actually dropped down was because they recognized our GWP, which was an enormous piece of work. And I, I give credit to everybody involved, the, particularly the government work doing plan, that, which, the which government, sets sorry, out the, 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 government the agenda for the term. What it realized was that the historical ambitions of various assemblies, and indeed this particular one, were completely unaffordable. And the outside world recognized that. And we did not have the wherewithal to service it. That's why our credit rating dropped. So this is why that we are sort of, you might think, paranoid about keeping that credit rating going. And understandably, and it's counterintuitive, borrowing is better than using reserves. And that's the situation that we find ourselves in. But you're out of time to borrow inexpensively, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. And that will be the case for the next foreseeable future. I think historically, if you look back, what we had a, it was a blip from 2007, 2008, when we had the banking crisis, where money was, you know, quantitative easing, they called it, the printed money. They devalued currencies around the world, which we can't do. But our currency was devalued because we're pegged obviously to, to sterling. That's gone. That was an unusual period. Generally, you are talking about more like four to five percent. And that's what I think we're confronted with going forward. Let's talk briefly about um, public sector costs and, and spending reductions, because the last time the states debated tax and spending, PNR was directed to, to uh, work with other members to identify between 10 and 16 million pounds a year of uh, savings. The, the current policy letter states that there is now a two thirds probability that even the minimum savings target of £10 million won't be achieved. Given that states' expenditure is, what, £750, £800 million a year, that is extremely unambitious, isn't it, for PNR not to be able to identify £10 million a year of savings? Um, no, I'm going to disagree. Uh, and I'm going to give you a for instance. Um, as part of the funding investment plan uh, and the presentations that we've made, we've made... Um, uh, distinctions between comparison with Jersey and the UK and the Isle of Man. We are the lowest per capita for public services right now by a significant amount. If we wanted to be comparable to Jersey, we would need to spend another £50 million a year to keep up with it. So what that tells us is that actually our spend on public services is actually quite conservative already. Now, if you want to cut that back, we certainly can. People think, oh, we'll just cut civil service jobs. That's a complete and utter nonsense. What you're talking about is cutting services to get that back. Okay. Now, that's a myth. I believed it on the outside because it's a common and popular myth. Oh, God, we've got plenty of extra civil servants. That is not the case I have found coming in. I could not know that from the outside, but I accepted the myth. So what do you do? The only way you improve that is productivity. And as you know, we had a huge hiccup with our own technology last Christmas. Again, something, a huge shock coming in to see how far behind we were the curve uh, as far as technology deployment. But that's where productivity increases can come from. If you want to save money, you have to look at more inventive ways of actually providing the same services or a variation thereof. And one of the areas that we can do that is by commissioning some services out. If, if other organizations are in a better, more effective way to deliver those services. So the, uh, the, the Guernsey Sports Commission is an absolutely excellent example. We can't do what they do. They can do it far more effective than we do it. So we utilize them. Um, the Health Improvement Commission, people who are actually dedicated to doing this, 
you know, the third sector generally is more than willing to help us with this. What we don't want to do is to shortchange them. But what we also need to recognise is that we have to deliver a range of services. Somebody's got to deliver those services. One of the options, I think, for the future where we can get more cost effective is if the state starts to think of itself more as the curator of public services and gives people access and signposts to third sector, off-island, private sector, and of course, there are some things that we will always do so that people can navigate themselves through the services that they themselves require. And one of the ways we'll deliver that is through the MyGov website, which is now being re-energized now that we're starting to get our technology back under control. So, for example, with two-factor authentication, which again, we're looking at at the moment, you will be able to enter in and you will be recognized your circumstances, your status, and you will have access to various things given who you are. But you will drive your relationship with the states. That changes the weight of actually how we have to deliver services. So we can make ourselves more effective, but if you recognize that the the, uh, the plan that was put in place, I think it was 2014, we saved about 35 million pounds then. Now, clearly then there was fat. When you take that much out of the public sector, you are going to be finding it increasingly difficult. It's diminishing returns. You are cutting yourself really quite lean and still trying to take a huge amount of money out of it. But it is being done. It's certainly being looked at. One of the things we did was to ask the public what they could come. And there were some great ideas there. Now, unfortunately, some of them are things that are either already being done or will be small improvements. And small improvements over time can help. But there's no magic silver bullet here that we're going to say, oh, that will save us 16 million pounds. It's not going to happen. So efficiency savings are not going to be the route to dealing with the deficit. I, th- I think that's, that's a certain degree. I think. Okay, so I th- that's that's PNL's message. Now let's just assume that PNL's proposals are not only correct but are accepted by the states. And 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 to finish off our, our discussion, I want to come back to whether you can actually get them through the states. But first of all, let's just assume they've got through the states. So you've 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 got the the tax package through. You've got the three hundred and fifty million pound borrowing approval. You can you can. In theory, you can get going with your capital program. Hmm. Now, that is a program worth 550 to yeah. 600 million pounds. D- do you know the average capital spending in each state's term at today's prices over the last 40 years? I have no idea. Yeah, guess. Uh, I, because we haven't been spending that much money? You mean on average? An, an average state's term over the last 40 years. What I have seen from the last 10 years is the blip we had when we actually built um, uh, Bowcamp School and the airport. That's the only time we've gone beyond the 2% that we are committed to at this point, over an eight-year okay, eight that, time. That, that's true. Year. But the, the figure is it's close to about 180 million yeah. and in, in a four-year term. And the policy of the states, as you've referred to already, is 2% of GDP will be invested annually or over the course of Correct. the term yeah. in, in, in capital projects. That's 280 million across a state's term. But we're talking here about a capital programme of nearly 600 million. Now, even allowing for catch-up in infrastructure investment, there there may not have been in recent years. You are proposing a capital programme that Guernsey just doesn't have the capacity to carry out, aren't you? Uh, certainly not by the end of the term, if that's what you're suggesting. <laughs> but, uh, so, there okay, is so, no intention to do all of those projects but in is, two years. No, but there is over a period of five or six years. Well, for example, the ho- the hospital programme won't exit till about 2028 or 2029. Um, but these programmes are at different stages. 
So, for example, if you take the two major programs that we're talking about at the moment, which is the education estate, and it's not just lock. I mean, that 140 or whatever it is at this point in time is not anything to do with, it's certainly not the sixth form, and it's certainly not just the campus. There's a lot of other things in there. But that, that aside, that is ready to go. That's oven ready, if you like, to use Boris's term. That can hit the ground running tomorrow, presuming you, obviously you've got a, 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 a contract in place to do it. But the work that's required on that will not be the same work that will be required on the hospital contract, which is actually two, three years away. By the time they require the same level of uh, 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 practical labour services, uh, groundworks, whatever, that will be gone. So you have to stage these things. Sure, but, but you are still even allowing for that. You are talking about doubling capital investment. I mean, even if you run these projects over five or six or seven years. Now, the, let's, the three biggest projects probably are Les Osway, the yep. education, the post-16 campus, the next phase of the Princess Elizabeth Hospital and, and public sector housing. Housing in, in is its very broader important. sense. Yes, absolutely. But, but it's you just physically, Guernsey doesn't have the capacity to carry no, out no, 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 all I, of those projects, even over a period of four or five or six years, does it? Well, I think th there are different elements of different things that you've just described there at this point in time. The campus, for example, is more of a traditional approach in terms of building approach. Housing is a major challenge for us. You probably know, or you may not know, we have several hundred approved, approved plans for housing at this point in time. They're not happening. Now, why are they not happening? They are not happening, yes, partly because of obviously construction uh, personnel not being available, partly because, again, as I mentioned before from Brexit, we can't. the Polish builder went home years ago. We can't get those guys anymore, like we did for the, the, the airport extension. But also because <clears throat> it's not profitable. Labour costs and costs of housing materials are far higher than they ever were. So I think that's probably what's stopping the private sector from building at this point in time. <clears throat> but if you take something like Lille's Yard, that's a very different kettle of fish. And it's something that we're quite excited about and we'll hope that we can get to conclusion because the work there in terms of what the local labour might needs to do is just groundworks. The actual building of these three or 400 properties is modular. And that will be built and off-island and assembled here by off-island personnel. So there is one area where we can get a lot of housing very quickly that will not necessarily impact on anything else, by and large, that we're actually hoping to do. And housing is the key enabler for us. But we can't get over the problem, the market reality, that where there is a shortage of housing and increased demand, prices will go up. The criticism, I think, of, of your critics is not that any of these projects are wrong in themselves, but that your plan to carry them out over the next four or five or six years is undeliverable. And if it's undeliverable, you don't need to borrow as much. I mean, that is going to be a very difficult line of argument for, for PNR to overcome in, in the state. Well, as I said before, you won't borrow what you don't need. That's the beauty of this plan. You only borrow it when you use it or you can use it. So I, I certainly accept that the construction industry, and bear in mind, and this is the figures that I'm currently aware of, because we didn't plan sufficiently ahead as, as a government, the pipeline of projects that the building industry could rely on and plan for shrank from 5,000 to about 3,000 personnel. That was government's fault. We did not do what you were just describing, which is to plan ahead so that they can actually build ahead 
and actually employ and train the people that they need. And another key area there is the actually train. And this is where the education estate is as important as the hospital, because we can't service the demand we currently have for people in the construction industry to enter that industry because we are in desperate need of doing something with the whole TGI estate. And we've known that for years and ignored it. And now, unfortunately, chickens are coming home to roost. Finally, returning to, to the politics of this, in February, when when this this package, not the borrowing aspect, but the tax package, was put to the vote, it it was defeated in the States by 15 votes to 25. It was. So PNR has to turn, has to hold all those 15 votes and turn yeah. six votes to get this, this plan through the States. How many do you think you are turning already you're only two weeks away from the debate your proposals have been out for some time are, are you holding the 15 uh, is the 15 growing is it getting close to 21 it's a crystal ball job isn't it really at the end of the day and on the day you know oratory might you know claim the day uh, we have some good orators um, one of the better ones peter roffey has been solidly behind this approach from the word go and, and i take my hat off to him it's not a natural alliance for him but he's very passionate and he understands the realities of this, even if some people are putting their head in the sand or ignoring the fact that several years ago, GST was the solution and now decide that it's not. So it's difficult to say, but we have done a lot more this time than we did before. Uh, I personally spent the whole of August with committees. We've talked to unions. We've talked to industry. We're talking to the Duzanes. We are talking to anybody at the third sector. We've talked to all of these people. It's still very difficult to get that message across. I understand that, but we are going out there and trying to do it. Now, Peter, uh, Peter Fairbrush, of course, has even entered the world of social media. There's a scary thought, basically, at the end of the day. Um, but he's doing his best. You know, he's, he's been urged to try. We'll try everything that we can at this point. But it comes down to those six votes. I think we all understand that. Um, the alternative is there are two other alternatives. There, there may be more that may come into play. We, 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 or these could get amended out of sight. We really don't know. If they do, and one of the, the issues that I've tried to make clear to all members in all of the meetings that I've had is you can't pick and mix here. You can't take something from... Scenario one, which has got the least amount of capital, or it takes something from three, which has got the most, and put it into scenario one without changing it completely. Those are costed packages. If you change the, the, you know, the component parts of it, they don't work out anymore. So we are hoping that people have actually spent enough time recognizing that if you don't want to have that, you have to move something else out to be able to put something else in. Um, and I'm aware that possibly, for example, there may be a, an approach for a, in portfolio one, which is the only one that doesn't have the hospital extension in it at this point in time, to actually put it in there. There is no way that we can pay for that except to exhaust reserves. For the reasons I've just explained, we do not want to do that. But if that's the will of the House, that will be the will of the House. We'll have to see what the states decide. Um, but if you are defeated, if PNR's plan is defeated for a third time, does the committee resign? Why would we do that? Well, if it has lost the confidence of the states. Has it, it lost its, the confidence well, or has it not just actually been able to convince people sufficiently of the right course of action? But its flagship tax package would have been defeated three times. And you've got twice. We didn't actually have that package right at the start. It was there, there was a first debate where was where debate GST, GST was withdrawn, wasn't it? There wasn't a vote, but it, but PNR has put GST before the states three times. Yeah, in states different, have seen in it different about five forms. times, I think now probably. If the proposals are lost, I mean, you've still got eighteen months or so of, of or more than eighteen months of this term to to run. Surely, 
if you can't get a majority for your flagship tax package, given the seriousness of the looming deficit, you've got to either move aside and let another group have a go to try and get a majority, or you're going to have to make a fourth attempt to bring back your package, aren't you? The the issue really when you're running government is you can walk away, which would be very, very irresponsible at that point. I mean, we're talking about a tax package. There's a huge amount of other things that actually PNR deal with on a day-to-day basis that we are familiar with, that anybody coming back into the situation would actually have to familiarise themselves with. I think government would come to a stop, frankly. If that's the will of the House, if they want to remove us, of course, they'll remove us. You know, why would we carry on beating our heads against a brick wall? But the tax package is only one part, if you like, of what PNR is responsible for. There are many things on our desk at this point in time. And, and one of the key things at the moment is that technology situation just now. Another area, of, I mean, many things that probably people aren't even aware of. Um, and maybe we'll talk about a little bit about education. So, yeah, let, let's put some myths to bed about the whole education approach that we've got at the moment. It's about the models, basically. Because I've heard, and we've seen in social media, a hundred million pounds to move the sixth form 50 yards. That is complete and utter nonsense. The cost of the sixth form is 17 to 18 million pounds of the, of the whole model. When you compare that to the two school model, which was actually being billed at 69 million pounds to do two schools and all of the reconstruction and all of the actual um, difficulties there would be for students whilst that was being done, moving the sixth form out prevents all of that disruption and is done at a far far lower cost, far, far lower cost. And I know that's only one part of the model. But the main reason that we looked at doing that was because the sixth form was the key to the whole package. There is no doubt that actually the two school model, innovative though it was, and in nobody's manifesto, by the way, um, was having real trouble getting public traction. And I don't think it was actually the model of 11 to 18. It was the size it was the size of the impact is something that Guernsey's not used to. And that was borne out by the same survey that the last ESC put in place, where they said the maximum size for any school should be six to 800 people. That immediately pushed out the two-school model, which was 1,200. So we had to look at something else. The third thing that came into play, unfortunately, at that time, was that the sixth-form teachers said, do not split the sixth-form, for very good reasons. Because when you split the sixth form, what you're effectively doing is you're putting in an inefficient and not cost-optimal approach to delivering the whole breadth of the curriculum. You can't put the whole curriculum in two separate locations with only 200-odd staff. And if you do it in three, which is the only other way to go, it's even worse. So in the end, what you had to do was to look at how do you distribute 2,400 kids, including the sixth form, across three locations. Now, The difficulty there, of course, is that actually if you put the sixth form, which the sixth form itself now contains adults. When we had the election, we changed the ability for people to vote. They became adults at 16. Now, adults at 16 have more in common with adults who are also 16 than they have with 11-year-old students. So the future for education, and AI is one of the things that actually we could see was on the horizon, is to give people the opportunity in a single campus to be able to have multiple pathways. So academic, 
vocational, professional, technical, you can, you can mix those pathways for a future which is going to demand a very different type of environment going forward. These are some of the drivers that we had. So it wasn't just about cost. It was also about outcomes because the outcomes for those post-16 students are going to be very different going forward. The need is going to be very different. Now, at the moment, there are members of the assembly clinging on desperately to the two-school model. And the reason that they think that it should be possible is because of the whole 11 to 18 versus 11 to 16. Well, we've just explained why we can't do 11 to 18. So we have to look at the better alternative. And I actually believe, and I ESC strongly believed at the time, which I was also on at the time, that this was the correct way forward for the future rather than clinging on to the past. So I think we're preparing Guernsey for a different future, which will be on us before we realize it rather than clinging to what was a past that clearly was having a great deal of difficulty in the public and getting acceptance. If, however, the states don't accept PNR's tax plan and, and capital projects plan in a couple of weeks' time, education, sport and culture will not have the money That's to true. go ahead and, and, and carry out their, their plan, which, which as you um, uh, suggest, has, has already been approved by the states. I mean, f first of all, can I just clarify, is, is that my, that's my understanding of it, that you, you have set out the capital projects that we can have. be funded in each package. Yep. If none of those packages get through yep. or the, the do minimum package gets through, there isn't the money for the hospital and there isn't the money for Liz Osway, is there? No. At that point, because there is this interim plan to move the sixth form from Livaron to Lamar de Cartray, if... There isn't the money to do the overall plan, including Liz Osway. The sixth form is going to have to stay where it is, isn't it? Well, then we've got a problem because we can't. Because we can't accomplish. We're in the midst of a transformation. We've already started moving kids from LMDC. So we have a much smaller cohort size now to LMDC, which is inefficient. But actually, we promised that we would carry on to support it. And we're going to have a growing number of kids supposed to transition to the new labor on. You will end up with 1,200 kids on that site in a mixed cohort, not a select cohort that we've actually had before, much more difficult to ch and challenging for teachers to manage. And we don't have the room because we also have already on that site, we have the Guernsey Music Centre, we have SHARE, we actually have the Youth Commission supposed to be on there as well. And they're supposed to occupy the space that actually the sixth form is going to vacate. So we will have to build. The minimum cost of doing that is going to be like about £9 million and about £5 million to move those other three organisations somewhere else. We're not saving really much money doing that. And we've actually got 1,200 kids on one site. It is crazy. I do not know what the education system will look like if we don't proceed with this, this proposal, because that is unacceptable. We cannot manage that. So education would, I think I'm right in saying, be faced with a choice. They could either go ahead with the movement of the sixth form students to Lamar yeah, but indefinitely because there wouldn't yeah. be a long-term plan, or they could keep them where they are at Livaron, but it would require carrying out the, it the would work be that you've outlined. I mean, that, that is yeah. that is the choice they would face, isn't it? it? Is. What, I mean, what would you do in that case? I would move them. I would move the sixth form because it's going to be about one hundred forty thousand pounds to bring the sixth form LMDC up to the kind of level that it would require. And yes, it is. It is not going to be a long-term situation. It cannot be. But we still we, we cannot accommodate those twelve hundred students on that one site, and we've got parents who've been told what's going to happen with the children, the siblings involved. The ramifications of not carrying on with the transformation would be quite severe. So 
what would education do? They'd have to opt for the least cost effective or the most cost effective option, which actually is to move the sixth form out. But it would not be an acceptable situation in the longer term. We've spoken about confidence of the states in PNR. Education does appear to have a real challenge getting anything through the states at the moment. It, it's its law proposals were withdrawn yeah, after losing. I, if, if we could talk on lots about that, because I, I know when Melinden was here, he was making some claims about it being unprecedented. Well, you'll probably know because you were in that assembly. There were thirty amendments, over thirty amendments to the IDP. We've never seen anything like that before, and we've never seen anything like that since. They started the debate with about eighteen. Eight of them were never laid. One was from actually uh, ESC itself. So we're talking about nine unprecedented. I mean, it, it's ridiculous. So but they, the they, hyperbole they could, around that okay, at this they point. Could and, get, um, school through. Uh, school is another issue. Absolutely. I completely agree with you there. But we've found ourselves in a bit of a quandary there too now, unfortunately, with that. Because, and it's quite surprising, education attempting to try to save some money, although that wasn't actually the driver. But the situation that actually unfolded on the floor of the debate was that education has no authority. We don't have a law which includes HERM. So we are operating in HERM without a law to back us up. That's not an acceptable situation because it raises all sorts of opportunities for negligence to be brought into play. Because if we choose to operate in HERM, which is clearly what we are doing through custom and practice, which is absolutely fine, if we don't apply the same rigor in terms of what we provide the students with in HERM that we're applying elsewhere, then frankly, a safeguarding issue or something could apply. We would find ourselves being charged with negligence. So these are some of the difficulties that it's, it raised that we didn't even know that we actually had a problem with. But more than that, ultimately, it's about actually the quality of the education that very young children have available to them. And it isn't, difficult, it isn't easy for kids to be having to be transported one way or the other. Um, but what we have to do now is we have to put it back, not actually exactly as it was. We have to put an LSA in there, a learning assistant, for the safeguarding side of things, if nothing else. But also, because clearly, you know, if we've got one teacher available to us, the teacher can be sick, the teacher can fall ill, all many manner of things. Um, we've had to put locks on the doors that we should have had a long time ago. So there were some structural things that did have to change to ensure that we abide by the sort of level of education that we provide here in Guernsey. Amid these difficulties that the DSC have had getting recent proposals through the states, do you worry that there, there actually isn't any longer a majority in the states in favour of the secondary and, and post-16 model? Well, I guess what you've got to think is, are we going to throw education into total disarray again? We've had this for over 10 years. The teachers have had enough. We're losing teachers hand over fist. They have had enough, and quite rightly so. If the states wants to be so irresponsible that it wants to stop something that's in mid-flow now, not as the two schools were, which was actually in just sketch stage at that point in time, Jobs have been committed. Jobs have been ring-fenced. People have changed jobs to suit the new model. If we're going to stop that, what are we going to put in its place? A vacuum, again, and the people who really suffer are the students. Now, we've got to get back to basics and accept that the students are our future and we are treating them badly if we are prepared to argue again about the state of education and how it should be delivered. Because I actually want to talk about what AI is actually going to do both for the island and in particular for education. 
So you'll be re- you'll be aware, for example, um, that we had this wonderful AI conference run by Guernsey Finance, which was very well respond- uh, uh, supported and people very well received. And one of the more um, passionate speakers was Daniel Hartford Fox from the Ladies College. Very, very well versed in AI. She explained quite clearly that education is going to change as a consequence of AI. Not only, if you like, in terms of the sort of self-driven opportunity for students themselves, but the culture of teaching has got to change as part of this. And I completely agree. So the educational implications alone, let alone what can happen in health, and we're looking at things like virtual wards and things like that already. I sit on a subcommittee looking at AI for government, on which Daniel actually sit, Daniel sits as well. Um, so we are already trying to prepare for other things that perhaps at the moment are bubbling along that people aren't even aware of. That's just one example at this point. Um, I also sit, if you like, on the subcommittee for um, uh, the parish working group. And that's another area that's probably quite topical at the moment in terms of island-wide voting or going back to parishes. But I actually sit on that chair and I'm obviously trying to give them the opportunity, which is one of the things they've had concerns about, to interface back with committees and government because that's what they're actually lacking. That seems to be be responded quite well. We've got a lot of work to do there. Many, many areas, if you like, that P&R have a responsibility for that are very low on the radar, but are actually going on. So we can walk away and people are going to have to pick up all of that. Now, that's what the states requires to do. That's what we'll do. But I wouldn't walk away because I'd see that as irresponsible. So it's not all about tax in no. in the in the medium term, but it is for the next few weeks. Yes, it is, uh, and it will be an interesting states debate in a couple of weeks' time. We will continue to provide uh, extensive coverage up leading up to that debate and during that debate. But for now, thank you for your time, Deputy Murray. <laughs>